You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Good morning. Peace be with you. I pray that you all are doing well this morning. What a uh, wonderful time of worship we've already been able to experience as a church family this morning. And before we dive into today's text, I do want to make two quick announcements. The first is, is that in two weeks, we are starting a new series through the book of Philippians. And the name of the series is Citizens of Heaven. Citizens of Heaven. As you all know, we've been traveling through Matthew for some time and we take breaks at different sections to, in order to explore uh, other things. And I just believe that the book of Philippians uh, from now to the end of the summer is what we need as a church as we will look at the, the life of Paul and how he was quarantined, so to speak, or in prison and yet wrote the church at Philippi, a very upbeat and encouraging letter. So we're gonna look at how Paul was able to have joy and contentment even in the midst of being confined and suffering. Um, And we'll also look at the theme of what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? Uh, We know that this is a big election year. There's gonna be some big conversations and Paul really helps uh, the church that he is writing to, to root their identity and the fact that they belong to a different kingdom. And so uh, please uh, ready your heart, start reading through the book of Philippians and uh, get ready to join us in that uh, study. But second, um, I wanna invite you uh, this Wednesday, to join our live stream at 7.30, as we'll probably have a, a talk for about uh, 45 minutes. And the subject this week is going to be justice in the church. As many of y'all know about the tragic death of uh, two uh, wonderful people who were created in the image of God, Ahmad Arbery and Brianna Taylor. And I simply want to share my heart with you all as a church, as we think through how do we respond? How as individuals and as a church where a national tragedy happens and the theme is race. I wanna make sure that we are a church that is about justice, uh, but that we're also clear-minded and compassionate all around. And so uh, make sure you tune in uh, this Wednesday at 7.30 uh, to hear more on that subject. Well, we've got quite the text in front of us today. We've got about 20 verses and uh, it's a lot of great stuff. This is one of those weeks where I wish I could take 50 minutes uh, to teach to you and preach to you. But if your household is anything like mine, you have some things or some people around you that will probably distract you during this live stream. So I'm going to try to cut it in about half um, of that time. Uh, Let's pray. And then we're going to dive in uh, to this important text and these important verses. Uh, Father, thank you so much for this day that you have made. Um, I pray, Father God, that you will give me clarity of speech as I preach and proclaim your word. I pray for those who are are listening this morning, uh, Lord, that you would just break through any distraction, break through anything, Lord, that would keep them from hearing you clearly. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable. And I do pray for the Arbery and Taylor family, as well as everyone involved, city officials, um, our local authorities, that you would just bring a peace and justice and clarity. 
I pray that you would bring healing to the city. In Christ's name, we do pray. Amen. All right, as we look at today's text and topic, I want to uh, talk from the subject of a gritty church community, a gritty church community. And I want you to start off by you hearing this quote by Mark Dever. Imagine this church. It is huge and is still growing numerically. People like it. The music is good. The people are welcoming. There are many exciting programs and people are quickly enlisted into their support. And yet the church in trying to look like the world in order to win the world has done a better job than it may have intended. It does not display the distinctively holy characteristics taught in the New Testament. Imagine such an apparently vigorous church being truly spiritually sick with no remaining immune system to check and guard against wrong teaching or wrong living. Imagine Christians knee deep in recovery groups and sermons on brokenness and grace being comforted in their sin, but never confronted. Imagine those people made in the image of God being lost to sin because no one corrects them. Can you imagine such a church apart from the size Have I not described many of our American churches? Wow. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus makes this powerful declaration when he says, and I also say unto you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus was instituting and and starting his church, his called out ones, his ecclesia. He was beginning to shape and to form her in a way in which we know it as the New Testament or New Covenant Church, the people of God. And then last week, we looked at the importance as, uh, uh, as the people of God and beholding the glory of Christ and cultivating intimate moments with Jesus and living an intimate lifestyle with him that leaves us constantly at all at his person, at his character, at his finished work. And this week, we're going to continue to to look at um, who the church is and, and, and what she is to be like by looking at this theme of community. And my encouragement to us, Sojourn Midtown, is to continue to be a gritty people who fill up their city, but to be a particular type of people. And this is my main point. It's this. It's that a gritty church is fueled by the love of Jesus, which leads us to live for his reputation with humility while pursuing holiness. A gritty church is fueled by the love of Jesus, which leads us to live for his reputation with humility while pursuing holiness. And even to make that shorter is simply that as Christians, as we behold the glory of Jesus We are humbled and and pursue holiness. Jesus is all about wholeness and holiness, and we need each other to do that. 
And so here we have 20 verses, a lot of good stuff in all of the verses. And it may be hard to see how they're all connected, but I want you to see Jesus encouraging his disciples towards humility and holiness. And it starts off in verse 18, verse one. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, so who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And throughout the Synoptic Gospels, we see that this becomes a big debate and a big argument. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross and to be resurrected. And he has just announced that he essentially is the Messiah. And these disciples are are Jewish men and and, and he has Jewish women follow him as well, but, but mostly Jewish men who are kind of at the center of the story. And they would have grown up hearing stories of Phineas and the zeal that he had for the Lord a zeal that actually led him to to kill someone who had grievously broken the Lord's commandment. And in the scriptures, it said that Phineas was justified or counted as righteous before the Lord. They would have grown up hearing about the zeal of Elijah and the zeal of Abraham and the greatness of their forefathers and these disciples and seeing Jesus as the Messiah, they want to be reckoned as righteous. They want to be seen as great. And so they ask, or in one of the Synoptic Gospels, we see that uh, the mother of James and John asked, who is the greatest in your kingdom? And I love what Jesus does in verse two. He calls a child and he has them stand among him, verse two says. Verse three, and truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. So see the scene, Lord, who's gonna be the greatest? Who is the greatest in your kingdom? Who's going to sit at your right and your left hand? Jesus quiets his disciples. He calls some children. They stand. They stand among the group. And I think that this is really answering the question of of what it means to become like a child. There's many different analogies or ways that we could think about this, but I believe that at its core, Jesus is saying that in order to enter into my kingdom and in order to be truly considered as great, one must listen to my voice and obey it while walking lowly, while walking lowly. That's what it means to become like children. Children in the first century was those who listened and obeyed and who were seen as low in society. They didn't have many rights. They listened and obeyed their parents' voice. And Jesus is saying, the only people who will be kingdom kids and kingdom citizens are those, and we go back to Matthew chapter five, who are low and cross-shaped. Those who are poor in spirit those who are humbling themselves, those who are seeing themselves as not great or significant in the way in which the world sees them, but who see themselves as God's children. And when Jesus calls them, they follow him. They listen to him. They obey him as disciples. Notice what Jesus says here. This one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's almost as to say there's no such thing as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. All of God's children who enter into the kingdom through repentance and faith in Christ 
and who humble themselves to become his lowly disciples are those who are great. It's the servants, those who see themselves as the least. In verse five, and whoever welcomes one child like this in my name welcomes me. And so I want us to see that Jesus here uh, is using these children as as an analogy. And it may help us as we look at the rest of these verses to think not as literal children, but to think of spiritual children. I believe that Jesus means that whoever welcomes a child, that that shows humility for a person to welcome a child, to welcome that per- a person who is vulnerable, to welcome a person who cannot protect themselves, who cannot provide for themselves. But I believe the deeper meaning that Jesus is getting at is whoever welcomes one of God the Father's spiritual children welcomes me. So Jesus is teaching the disciples how to live in Christian community, how to regard one another, to be humble and to be for the other persons with whom he has saved and not seeking worldly significance and pursuing the world's definition of greatness, but his. And then after that, we see that Jesus is going to go into some very what appears to be some hard words. In verse six, he says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him if a heavy millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of offenses for offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offenses come. I wish I had more time to break this down, but here's what I think Jesus is doing. We see the disciples are Jesus' audience right here. And Jesus is teaching these disciples to be the apostles of the church, those who will be the foundation of the church and who will be those who are proclaiming and preaching the gospel and setting things in order in his church. And I believe that what Jesus is warning them against right here is false teaching. And Jesus is getting to the fact that the person who is living as a, a false teacher who is not careful in the way in which they live, it is better for them to die a horrid death, to have a millstone to be hung around their neck because they have offended and led astray the father's spiritual children, which shows us that the father takes serious those who profess faith in Christ Jesus and he is willing to protect them and to keep them. And this is what James chapter two says when James writes to the church that not many of you, he says, should be teachers. Not not many of you should be leaders because leaders will be judged with a, a stricter, in a stricter way. And so he pronounced woes, woe to the world because of offenses for offenses will inevitably come, but woe to that person by whom the offense come. The only other places we see these woes happening in scripture is in cities where they have rejected Jesus and amongst the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, these religious leaders who are leading God's people astray. In verse eight, if your hand or your foot causes you to fall away, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life lamed or maimed than to have two hands or two feet 
and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hellfire. And so what is Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, listen, disciples, you guys are sitting up here arguing about who's the best and who's the most significant and who's the GOAT, right? Who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest of all time? Who's going to be the one who's most honored in your kingdom? And Jesus is like, it's not about your glory. As the psalm says, not to us, not to us, but to your name, give glory for the sake of your steadfast love. It's not about you. It's about me and my kingdom. The greatest in my kingdom is the one who, like this child, listens to me and obeys me. And by the way, rather than worry about being the greatest, make sure you get in. Get in by humbling yourself and becoming like a child. And as leaders of my church, by pursuing holiness radically pursuing holiness. Now, we know that Jesus here is not literally uh, talking as figuratively speaking. He's not calling us to take out our eye or to cut off our hand. I remember it was an R&B artist years ago who did that, who plucked out his eye because he said he uh, uh, was constantly lusting and looking at pornography. And the reason that I believe that this is a figurative language though it doesn't mean that he's not telling us to take radical action and to show commitment, is because you can pluck out your eye, you can cut off your hand, you can maim yourself and still have the same issue. As Pastor Nathan preached weeks ago, sin uh, and life happens in the heart. But what Jesus is doing is saying that those who have humbled themselves and become like a child are those who are willing to go incredible distances to live holy. And many false teachers, many people start off uh, about Jesus and end up about themselves and end up leading people astray, having uh, adulterous relationships, being taken over by greed and by lust because when sin knocked, they answered the door. When sin came, rather than starve sin and go into community to help uproot sin, they played with sin. And can a man take fire into his bosom and not be burned? Becoming like a child is humbling ourselves, is becoming low, is doing whatever we can to pursue Jesus. And it's knowing that if we lead one of his spiritual children astray, and if we don't return to him, and if we don't beg for forgiveness and, and mercy and come back to him, that a greater judgment than a millstone being put around our neck awaits us twice we see in verse eight, he says that it's better to have your hands, two hands and two feet and to be thrown in eternal fire. In verse nine, and if your eye causes you to fall away, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown in hellfire. Twice Jesus mentions hell. And this is a reminder to us that God takes us being formed as disciples of Christ into his image seriously. 
And that since God takes sin seriously, we must take sin seriously. And our commitment to Jesus should lead us to a place where we do not pet our sin and hide our sins and say, this sin is just my sin, but rather when we make war on our sin and we surrender to the Lord to be made whole. It's interesting that in verses 10 through 14, Jesus then goes and he tells the parable of the lost sheep. Verse 10, see to it that you don't despise one of these little ones because I tell you, that in heaven, their angels continually view the face of my father in heaven. What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it truly, I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. And who are these little ones? These little ones are you and me. It's the church. It's the disciples. It's his spiritual children who have come into his kingdom through a door that is low and cross shaped. God is serious about his kids. So serious that he is warning his other kids, don't cause my kids to, to, to go into sin. Don't cause my children to walk away from me and my words. Don't lead them astray. And if they do go astray, know that I love them so much that I'm willing to leave the 99 and go and pursue the one. But the question is, how does God leave the 99 to pursue the one? I think a lot of times when we hear this, we think of this in a maybe a metaphorical way um, and not in a very practical way. And I believe that this next section is God showing us his primary way of going to get that one lost sheep. The analogy shift, shifted here from a, a child to a, a sheep. That God is, is, is saying that that if one of these little kids is led away because of a false teacher, because of a bad leader, because of he's following a, another Christian who has led them off the beating path, that God is so serious that he will leave the rest of his healthy sheep to go and to get that one. But how does he do that? Well, he does it through the church, through a gritty, Christ-loving, Christ-exalting, Christ-beholding, Christ-committed, Christ-bought, Christ-saved people. Verse 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take two, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter you pray for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am a God in the midst. 
So follow this. Christ is calling us to become like children, to listen and to obey. Christ is warning us against leading others astray as a result of our lack of discipline and and living unholy lives. Christ is saying, I care so much about those children that I am willing to to leave 99 sheep to to go and to get one, which seems like a reckless uh, shepherd, but it's not. It's a loving shepherd. And then he says that the way in which I go and get that sheep is through the church. It's through you and me. If your brothers and sisters sin against you, he says, go and rebuke him in private. So, so Jesus is going to tell us to do four things here. And this is something that we call church discipline, church discipline. And church discipline may sound harsh, but it's not. Discipline is not harsh if done in love and properly. Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines those whom he loved, just like a loving father disciplines his children. See, sin can lead us to hell. Sin can lead us from, to, to eternal separation from God. Sin can leave, uh, lead us to a miserable place. And while we don't want to be sin police, when we see a brother and a sis, or a sister sinning flagrantly, we need to tell them. We don't want to be nitpicky, for we know that love covers a multitude of sin, as Paul told the church of Corinthians. But when we see a person flagrantly sinning, when we see a person habitually sinning, uh, when we see a person doing unhelpful thing as a brother and sister in Christ, the Bible says we should go to them, number one, with private correction. The Bible says if that person does not listen, then we go and we get a small group of people involved. Now, let me say this. According to Galatians chapter six, we're not going to go there, but I want you to read verses one through four later on today. The Bible says that those who are spiritual, those who um, are are living before the Lord in such a way, I'm thinking of Jesus on a sermon on the Mount here. I believe it's Matthew chapter six, where he tells us to take the log out of our eye before we go to our brother. Those who are genuinely seeking to follow the voice of the Lord. When we go to a brother or sister who has sinned against us, we go as a child. We go as one who is in need of the father's love and affirmation. We go gently knowing that that kid can be us. We don't go to affront them. We don't go to to humiliate them. Um, And I love how it says you go to that person one on one. We don't go and tell five people that another person sinned against us before we go to that person. You go to them one on one. And that takes grit. It takes not being a people pleaser. It takes us trusting in our identity in Jesus. It takes us believing that we are a beloved child to go to someone and speak the truth in love, but we do it because we love them. So first he says, go, private correction. Second, you go with small group involvement. And over time, this doesn't happen in 10 or or 20 minutes. Uh, You follow the spirit, you listen, you plead with the brother or sister, you wait, you plead, you wait, you go and get two or three others they plead, they wait, and then you go and, and you, get, you take it before the church. And if we did our job as Christians, 
being in community with one another, living life amongst each other, developing honest, vulnerable relationships with each other. Very few things would need to make it to the church. And the things that make it to the church should be because the person who was committing sin or living a life of sin, it is evident that their heart is hard, so hard that the pastors and the members of the church cannot confidently affirm that this person is walking with Jesus. And so church discipline and church involvement is meant to wake up that brother or sister and say, you are not living as a child of God. You are not living as a humble and lowly one who is kingdom-minded. You're living a self-centered, self-focused life that is headed towards destruction and we love you enough to come and get you. James chapter five, verse 19 and 20. James says, my brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. How does God go and get the one who has strayed away from the 99? It's not some vague necessary miraculous way, though he can stir up the word in their heart and lead them back to him in a miraculous way. But it's through everyday Christians, gritty Christians who love Jesus and who fear God more than they love the praise of man and fear man going to lovingly come around a brother and say, yo, bro, you are tripping. You are tripping. You are leaning way too heavy into this alcohol. You are tripping. You are are not living a life of purity and treating our sisters with dignity. Sis, you are tripping. There is habitual pride in your life that, that makes it difficult for people to do life with you. Man, you have a pattern of laziness in your life. And we're here to lovingly tell you to consider the ways of the ant and to work as unto the Lord. He does that through the church. And sadly, if after warning, after warning, after person, after a person, this doesn't happen, the church is is not only called to excommunicate this person, to treat them as a Gentile or tax collector, but it is called, it says that, in agreement that the Lord sees the decision that this church has made, these people have made, and he honors it in heaven. That's what it means here. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth would have been loosed in heaven. And here's what Jesus is getting at. If this community of believers is praying and walking with Jesus and thinking about the sin in a biblical way, when the church gathers together to confront a person um, who is in sin and to possibly even excommunicate them, Jesus is saying the church is already acting in line with what has already taken place in heaven. So when a church says, we no longer affirm you as a member of this church and won't do so until you repent from this sin and turn back to Jesus, Jesus is saying, I honor it. 
I've seen the way that you all have prayed and, and sought my face and it is pleasing in my sight. There's no such thing as a spiritual child who lives autonomously and separate from true Christian community. A healthy Christian is one who is doing life with other Christians and who have developed relationships where a multitude of counselors and people are helping them grow into the image of Christ. I praise God for Christian men and women who are in my life, who are not enamored by me, who do not fear calling me out on areas of weakness and sin. And I praise God for a church that practices church discipline. And Lord, uh, may, may it never happen, but if it is to happen, I pray that the Lord would soften my heart and allow me to submit to the leadership of my elders and my church as they warn me to turn from sin and to trust in Christ. Least hell's fires belongs to me. And I pray that for you. There's two books, so much I want to say here. And I'm, I'm getting close to my time. <laughs> There's two books that I want you to check out. One is written by our very own pastor, Robert Chong, and it's called Redeeming the Bride of Christ. If you want to learn more about church discipline and how God loves us enough to pursue us through his people, uh, this is the book. And the second is a book by a guy named Jonathan Lehman. And it's a short little book that's phenomenal. And it's called, uh, I believe, How the Church Protects the Reputation of Jesus. Because if there are no account, if there is no accountability, if there is no pursuit of people who are living in sin, then, then that person is hurting the church and keeping the church from being salt and light to the world, a city that is set on a hill. And so just like your job, just like your school has, has regulations and expectations for living, so it is with the church. And God is not calling us to be perfect, but he's calling us to live as if we were purchased. We are slaves of Christ. We no longer belong to ourselves. We are part of his body. We are part of his bride. And we should live worthy of his gospel. We fall, we get up, we repent, we confess our sins so that we may be healed. We look to our mediator and we move on. We move on. So let me give you some really quick application. It's about to be real quick, okay? Just drawing this all together. What is God calling us to do in this, this chapter? And let me just say this right before the application, the very next section, which TPJ, Timothy Paul Jones, Dr. Jones is going to preach on next week. I can't wait till Pastor Jones does that. And it's all about forgiveness. See, this person who has sinned and maybe went before the church and who has come under the discipline of the church, they're not condemned forever. When they repent and turn, we'll see next week that the church is to take back that sinner with forgiveness knowing that they themselves have, have need of Christ's forgiveness. Real quick application. One, this text encourages us to become like a child to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Become like a child. Today, if you have never turned from your sin to Jesus, Jesus perhaps is calling you just like he called this child to stand before him, 
to listen to his voice, to allow him to be Lord of your life, to allow God in heaven to be your loving father. Trust him by looking to his cross and his resurrection, putting all of your hope on him and him alone. Two, this text encourages us to not despise children, the vulnerable and little task. Part of cultivating a heart like a child, I think, is moving towards intentionally those who are children, moving towards children in society, moving towards the vulnerable, uh, those who cannot get justice by speaking up themselves. I think Christians should be those who run to do little tasks of love that are often ignored in society because they love Jesus and they love people. We as Christians should be the ones who are volunteering to clean up alleys, who are volunteering to do the grunt work in society because we know that we serve a Jesus who though he was God became man and who did the grunt work of becoming like us in order to save us three. Man, I just wanna encourage you to, to stop trying to be somebody. I see too many people living to be discovered, finding their identity and likes and and shares and affirmation from online or from other people. And I have to guard my heart against this constantly. Stop trying to be somebody. Stop trying to make a name for yourself and humble yourself like a child. Live before the audience of your father. Store up your treasures in heaven where rust and moth does not destroy. You are somebody in Christ. You are perfectly loved in him. Next, look at what's hurting your faith and put it to death. Jesus speaks about this Deep commitment, and this shouldn't even be called a radical commitment. It's a Christian commitment that if something or someone is causing you to stumble, treasure Christ more than the pleasure or person who is leading you astray. Cut them off and trust in his goodness. Fifth, go and get the wanderer with humility. Perhaps you know someone who is wandering. Go and get them. Save their soul. Be bold. Speak to them directly. Tell them you are in sin. The Bible says so. Trust Jesus. I forgot what number I'm on, but next, cultivate deep community with brothers and sisters in Christ. Cultivate deep community with brothers and sisters in Christ. If you don't have a community of people who can come and get you when you're entangled in sin, that's a problem. And we, the church, we want to help you with that by pointing you towards community groups, towards restore, towards things here that are meant to cultivate genuine community. And we have to be gritty with that because community groups don't always work out and and people do disappoint us. And we do bring all kind of baggage into relationships, but don't give up on community. And finally, I want you to remember how much the father loves you. Listen to me. Remember how much the father loves you. He loves you enough. He loves you enough to leave the 99 and to come for you. During this pandemic, if you have found yourself entangled in sin, 
as this anxiety of the unknown is welling up in your heart and perhaps this is a secret sin of, of going back to uh, pornography or back to greed or back to lust or, or back to anger or maybe you're mistreating a friend or a spouse or, or cheating in some way, lying or, or stealing. I want to encourage you to hear the Father voice and to see him coming after you today through the sermon and through your community. Confess your sin to him and to your community and run into his loving arms. He loved you so much that he warned people that if they led you astray, that, that their judgment would be brutal. And he loves you so much that he saved you and put you as a part of this church so that you can be in a community of people who will speak the truth and love to you and restore you with grace. God is inviting you today to say yes to him. God is inviting you today to come back to Jesus, his cross, his resurrection, his sinless life, and his love for you. And every week we take a meal called communion. We break bread. We drink from a cup that is filled with wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, as you know, whatever your conscience permits. And we do this week in and week out to remind ourselves that though the blood of Jesus was shed for us, was free, free gift of eternal life. It's not cheap. Let's pray. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Soldier in Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit SojournChurch.com slash Midtown.